Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, uh, Steve Gullens. He's the author of a book called Evolving Ourselves, How Unnatural Selection and Non-Random Mutation Are Changing Life on Earth. Uh, he also uh, is heavily involved in the biotech industry, and he has some updates on new projects that are exciting that are out there and uh, what's happening, again, in biotech. So, Steve, thank you for coming back. It's a pleasure to chat again, Richard. I really enjoy what uh, you do and the world's evolving. Well, thank you. Well, tell me, um, let's let's talk about your book first, if that's okay. Uh, what prompted you to write it? And, you know, let's get into what the book's about, and then I want to ask you about the current state of biotech after that. So. Sure. Uh, I have a co-author, Juan Enriquez, who's a well-known uh, TED All-Star speaker who talks about many, many topics, generally about uh, – biology and the economy. And uh, Juan came to me one day and just said, you know what? I got a topic for a book we could write together. Darwin's wrong. Mm. That's a good start. Uh, I said, I I think I got the unnatural selection, but I'm not sure about the random mutation. I'm going to have to work on that. Okay. And uh, over the next few months, actually wrote it over about 12 months, the ideas came together of what we were seeing in the, not just in the everyday world that we see, as a lay person, but also in the technical scientific world, all the observations that were going on. It's very exciting times uh, for biology and for uh, for healthcare, as well as many aspects of society. Well, okay, so Darwin's wrong, wrong in the fact that uh, random mutation is what leads to evolution, or wrong in the fact that natural selection is what causes creatures to adapt? Like, can we go into it a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, the, the concept of, uh, so first of all, a lot of things attributed to Darwin were actually things that came later in terms of uh, how his theory was modified and improved, etc. But fundamentally, it comes down to this concept of natural selection, survival of the fittest is uh, what, what it's often termed. And in today's world, where there is uh, very little natural selection in terms of treating uh, infectious diseases when kids are little, so kids that might have normally died, 10% uh, didn't make it out of childhood a little over 100 years ago. And today, 
they uh, they survive and procreate. So a lot of uh, genetic uh, mutations that are out there are carried forward by our healthcare system and by the uh, the way we live as a society in terms of the natural selection process. So for much of the planet, there is a different set of rules. Uh, the other is that with the humans taking such an aggressive and enormous role in modifying nature in every way around us, you know, global warming is obviously a consequence, but in so many ways, there's nothing very natural about that, uh, at least in the way Darwin would think about it, if you look back, back at his books. And uh, so the idea that uh, the human-driven uh, world lives within a context of natural selection is not necessarily true. We actually take on, we actually modify environments to propagate certain species and to eliminate other species. Uh, in addition, the he didn't think about randomness, but it was described to him in about 50 years later as uh, that uh, these random mutations were what begat everything. And uh, in evolutionary terms, we do need, as a, any species, a way to modify our genomes and to modify our anatomy and biology in order to adapt to new environments. And uh, what we have is a couple of things. One, we're starting to understand how this works. It may be a little less random than we'd like to think. And on top of that, we're starting to tinker with it. Uh, the gene editing technologies we see today enable us uh, to actually modify the genomes as well as the biology with so many other things of our bodies and so and those of uh, other species. So as we look around, the direction that evolution is moving is certainly not in a random approach. Uh, it's actually moving in very directed ways that uh, benefit humanity, good and bad. Well, quick well, question, apart from humanity, you said that uh, evolution appears to not be as random as we would have hoped. What do you mean by that? So uh, maybe not hoped, but as, as we thought. It, it's interesting. In Darwin's day, and even until about 20, 20 years ago, evolution was assumed to take thousands of years for a species to emerge and for a species to change. Now there's many papers showing that in a single generation, the anatomy of an animal or the behavior of an animal or a plant can actually change. Let me give you an example. Uh, Darwin's finches are well known uh, in terms of the beaks and the seeds they ate. But what's, what's not appreciated is that in one season of drought, the shells of the seeds will actually get thicker because to resist uh, the drought conditions. Well, the birds can adapt, not by having one random mutation that then propagates across many generations, but in one year, all the beaks can get stronger as a result of this. And so these are considered to be epigenetic changes that are on the fly adapting. And once you understand that there is the ability to make these refinements on the fly quickly, we can actually begin to look at certain features or traits that humanity and other species have today that weren't there, say, 50 or 100 years ago or, you know, even several thousand and could have arisen across many populations in a hurry. Okay. So, so I mean, the, we, we haven't seen speciation, though. I mean, we've seen, like, I guess, you know, adaptation and epigenetic change. But what do you think governs underlying change of uh, our DNA? And do you think that we'll see speciation or what causes it? So the term species has about 26 or seven definitions, if you look on the internet. 
Uh, there's everybody thinks they knows know what it is, and it's not simply about uh, the ability to reproduce. Defining differentiation between whether two things are from the same strain or the same species with slight you know, racial differences, etc., is not very clear. I talked to George Church once, and he said 30% DNA change is a new species. The ability to, re you know, tigers and lions can actually create babies. We have uh, many other examples where procreation alone is not it. So when it comes to a species, two things that are very, very different, we know up front, or we can say a priori, you know, a cat and a dog are different species. But if you look at certain traits, at what point do you call two animals like a lion and a tiger that can reproduce a different species? And that, to think about that, we can look very simply at uh, humans and some of the other animals and plants around us to see how they've changed as a result of the environment around us. And uh, it begins, the idea of where a species begins and ends is not so clear as much as where certain traits appear and disappear in individuals or within a population. A couple of examples sure. of traits that have begun, have penetrated humanity, certainly in the developed world, that uh, we're all startled by, we can't explain the scientific approaches. Uh, the incidence of asthma has climbed, as well as the incidence of allergies. Uh, how many people dealt with peanut allergies 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it was a non-issue. The obesity epidemic, it has been tied to diet, and there's no doubt that there's an awareness of that. But when you think about the ability of the body to adapt and the conditions we're living under, today you can begin to say, well, maybe there's proper adaptation or maladaptation or just changes that uh, our bodies are fulfilling. For example, uh, today we live in a world where microplastics are in our bodies. We never deal with uh, the cold temperatures or, or extreme hot temperatures if we want to choose to live indoors. So we have nice weather all the time. We have daylight equivalent or comparable conditions. 18 hours a day, 16 hours a day. Mm -hmm. uh, we're breathing air that contains uh, particulate that didn't exist when our species first began to be created and evolved for millennia. Uh, so all of these exogenous factors, the food we eat, if you go ever go on a diet, you see the transformation of your body, but not just in terms of your weight, but in terms of all the biochemistry, you, you know, your breath can change and all of these things. Your body is very responsive to what goes on. The bacteria that live around us have evolved very quickly to the conditions that are going on. And, and interesting, and when you begin to say, why on earth are all of these occurring? Why is this so, so prevalent? Uh, one place people don't point very often is, you know what? The environment we live on is causing consequences that are unpredictable and unknown. It may be beneficial, may not be beneficial. Uh, there's the, you know, the well-known uh, uh, Flynn effect that humans are actually smarter now because they're testing to be smarter. And in all of these cases, we like to think conservatively that it's not possible for the genome or the epigenome or our biology to change so quickly. But as I said earlier, in a generation or even a partial generation, you can actually see impacts on the human physiology and biochemistry. 
Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. So what leads to significant change versus just, you know, like with Darwin's finches, the eggshells getting thinner or thicker, the beaks getting harder? What leads to uh, significant change? Nobody's absolutely sure. We know that a very, very strong pressure on, on the system, like an antibiotic on a bacterium. So we are very accustomed to understanding short-lived acute events. So if you eat a toxin, your body will actually elevate its responsive uh, detoxifying enzymes. Those kinds of things we understand, but things that cross generations. And there is something called transgenerational inheritance, where if a parent, including a, 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 and this is done primarily in mouse models and other species, there's also human data, that if a parent or even an in utero uh, child or an early um, a young baby is exposed to uh, famine or infection, high stress like war, there are consequences that are transmitted not just within that individual over many years. We can understand that kind of thing, but can be actually be transmitted to grandchildren and children and grandchildren in terms of it may be increase in body weight, et cetera. Perhaps the simplest example is the, the, the childhood weight of a newborn child as it grows up is affected by the metabolic status of the mother. If she's in a drought or a famine versus in a time when things are very, very plentiful, the, bobby, the baby is instructed by some way, you got to change your biology to be ready for this environment. So again, why are kids more heavy today than they were in the old days? It's obvious that they're taking in more calories, but it's not necessarily the entire explanation, particularly when it crosses generations. So are there any advances in the understanding of, uh, of evolution and biology that uh, you feel like you've, you've figured out or that your book explores? A couple of things. First, these experiments are almost impossible to do in humans. <laughs> so it's really hard to track something that takes three generations. Uh, and we all have some varied lives, so we don't have a sort of a control setting to see uh, if you change this variable, if you change the, you know, the, the temperature that a person lives in every day, what is the consequence to their metabolism, for example? So, but we, so we have to go by correlations. And there have been some and during times of war in particular when you can actually begin to see these kind of correlations play out. But in the studies in animals that have shown that things that this adaptive response is very rapid can occur in a generation or even less than a generation. I've just woken people up to the idea that any exogenous environmental effect can have consequences. Our, our bodies are very 
uh, primed to survive and to procreate. And that seems to be the most important thing. But I do think there is, we're, we're st- there's large databases of human health, which is really where we're focusing. Most, most that's where most, nobody's, nobody's funded by the NIH to fund uh, happiness and other positive outcomes. So most of the data you see is negative. You know, if someone, uh, there was an in, in Second World War in the Netherlands, there was a famine for a while, and there's a higher incidence, I believe, of schizophrenia in women born in that, gen, in that time period. And so you're, we're generally looking for negative things. But today in our all digital world with big data, it is inevitable that we will begin to accumulate, you know, even buying habits of what we're buying in the grocery now and the consequences of that in 60 or 80 years from now in ourselves and in our kids. So these long-term, slow and uh, incomplete, in other words, it's not 100% of people adapt the same way. These, these relationships will start to uncover themselves. But at the same time, our world is changing every day. So we may not, still not see that there was a smoking gun. And all I would say is that we have all of these changes going on. There is no concrete explanation for all of them. But we do have biological mechanisms to explain that the body will adapt. And there were never plastics or micro particulate existing in our air. So how the body adapts to an, uh, to an insult is unpredictable, I would assume, in most cases. And so it's going to take some time to ferret these things out. And in the beginning of our call, um, you talked about your involvement in biotech uh, offline, and you said there's a lot of exciting developments. So if it's all right with you, we'll turn the conversation there. What, what are you seeing in the biotech world? What new projects that are very exciting to you? The biggest thing that's occurred, uh, certainly in the in- industry, is the advent of uh, the COVID vaccine. Uh, what you saw was in 11 months from the day the sequence uh, was uh, provided to the scientists of the world, we were had a vaccine that was being injected into people. Uh, you go back to the 1918 flu, they had 50 million deaths globally. We have 5 million, even though we have a much larger population because of the technology that's there. That's an incredible achievement because in general, therapies for infectious diseases fail 70 to 75% of the time historically. But we're starting to see that in biotech, we're understanding the rules. We begin to understand the parts. So we're moving from a uh, empirical, often uh, trial and error discovery method to really engineering principles where we know the parts, we know the objective, and we can start to build molecules or therapeutic devices that can actually modify our bodies in ways that are beneficial. Uh, the legacy of toxicity is a problem, and uh, I can address that in more detail. But for where we sit, just as an analogy, uh, in 2022, uh, if you go back to the biotech revolution, it began in 1973 when Cohen and Boyer uh, transferred DNA from one microorganism to another. It wasn't even a different species. So the idea of transferring d- gene, transferring DNA, open a new door, a new horizon in how we actually can manipulate our own biology. And so that's almost 50 years at 49 years at this point. Uh, if we take a parallel of the IT revolution, which began in 1945 with the ENIAC computer, 
uh, when it was fully completed, it had over 5 million hand-soldered joints. And its only purpose was calculating uh, bomb um, velocities and trajectories and things like that for nuclear explosions. For Instead, a very simple arithmetic, uh, arithmetic approach. The tech world from 1945 did not come up with silicon chips until the early 70s, 1971, when Intel made the first one. And so it took, you know, 25, 30 years, and then Microsoft and Apple were formed, but they were considered hobbyist things at best. Um, the idea of a computer revolutioning our, revolutionizing our lives was on the cover of magazines, but it didn't impact our everyday lives, maybe our bank account behind closed doors. And so from the 70s until the dot-com era, we saw the evolution of Lot, we saw the technologies all get better, infrastructure get built. You know, the first computer chips were not 100% working every time. Things used to break a lot. Now we actually have robust technologies. But when the Internet came, suddenly e-commerce showed up in 1994. And by the year 2000, we'd seen a boom and bust. So that was 55 years. And at that point, Microsoft was the only company among the stalwart tech companies that was anywhere near a large market cap. It was in the top 10. So it still took another 20 years until today before the tech revolution fully manifested itself in our everyday lives. That Everyone is impacted. We take it for granted that we have a cell phone. We take it for granted. We have streaming services on TV uh, and be on and on and on. So it is a dominant force. Now to come back to, this, to the analogy, Biotech is 28 years behind that. And in many ways, uh, it's the parallels fit. We're at the equivalent because of the 28 year lag of 1994, uh, a, a in the early 90s and uh, today in biotech. And uh, the early and so the, uh, the idea that uh, uh, that's when e commerce first formed is a little bit equivalent to what the impact is today of biotech in most of our lives. We know about it, we hear about it, we see the vaccine, but it's not really there. What's happened in the last, particularly with COVID and some other things, is we've seen a leap forward with many biotech technologies, mostly in the healthcare space, because that's where the money can be made. But we've seen the ability to go from concept to a functional molecule, uh, drop from years <laughs> in digging up dirt in the old days to look for a bacterium that makes cyclosporin, uh, to just, as you saw, months. We've seen all of these transformations. We've seen the infrastructure change, the ability to read entire genomes in hours now when the first one wasn't done until you know, announced in about 2000. So the infrastructure has now been built the same way the Internet was built and computers were built. And, and frankly, COVID has put the manufacturing uh, up to speed because we needed billions of doses of those vaccines. So now we can make almost anything. So we're now poised with so many of these technologies having shown that they can deliver something valuable at reduced at much higher efficiencies. In fact, the number of approvals by the FDA per year has risen from an average of 24 per year for over 70 years from the 1930s into the early 2000s to 50 a year for the last five or six years. And I expect that to double again and continue doubling. And there's two aspects that one is we understand the biology and the other is we can actually engineer solutions. So what well, I think, you, what, what, what are some of the specific technologies that would be interesting to listeners to learn about that 
Maybe sure. they don't know about right now. Uh, mRNA technologies are, are something everybody knows about, uh, which is being used for vaccines. But uh, what's not known is when COVID first came out, over 150 companies jumped on the bandwagon to make a drug or a vaccine. And fewer than five of those were actually in the vaccine di- in business. All of those technologies were focused on cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and other major things. The technologies include mRNA. We had to find a way to get it into cells, which was accomplished. The gene editing technologies, which includes CRISPR and others. I see probably a company a month now with a new approach, editing DNA, editing RNA, uh, ways in which you actually modify it and change it, increase the gene levels or decrease them. In addition, we're seeing uh, the ability, one major transformation is to have two-headed molecules, one that identifies the injured or diseased cell type and the other that actually provides an action. So the ability to home and then to activate or inhibit a process is going to eliminate so many side effects. There's a reason tumor necrosis factor is called TNF. It's because it kills tumor. The problem is when you inject it into a human, it kills every tissue, not just tumors. So a person dies. So, you know, I'm aware of a company now that has a way to deliver TNF only to a tumor cell. And uh, it's only in animal models, but the animals survive and are, you know, have a zero toxicity. Beyond that, we're starting to see digital uh, therapeutics. I'm, you know, I wear a lot of devices. I work with a lot of companies that have monitoring, you know, uh, sensors on your body. It can be as simple as a as a watch, you know, Fitbit or Apple or somebody, or it could be something more sophisticated. So we're now beginning to monitor what's going on in our bodies. And with that information, as uh, Sir Lord Kelvin said, if you measure it, you can actually improve it. Once you know what your mind, body, uh, autonomic nervous system is doing when you're stressed and everything else, you can begin to implement methods to train yourself. I'm, I actually am on a board of a company that has a headband for adolescents to monitor their EEGs. And with it, they actually play a video game with their mind. And that because they map the 13 cognitive skills to a specific place within the brain where they're monitoring the signal, they actually treat ADHD as well as any drug with no side effects. And it lasts much, much longer. So these technologies for addressing our behavior. And with that will come ways of training our brains to do many, many things as we go forward. Not just treat ADHD, but, you know, to focus as a musician, to, you know, be calm be, you know, as a baseball pitcher when you're, you're in the, going out to, for the closing inning. There are just many things that are going to come about as these technologies come to fruition. And the one thing I haven't mentioned is outside of healthcare, which is Pretty simple to understand the progression because we saw this in technology. Outside of healthcare or even dealing with, uh, it, by healthcare, I mean people who haven't, are sick or have a, an issue they want to fix. Uh, humanity will jump on the bandwagon with any technology more or less if it's safe and affordable. Botox is the poster child for that. Uh, it was thought to be useful for only a rare muscle condition and with a $25 million market cap at peak sales, but lo and behold, it's good for wrinkles. And so we're anti-aging, and we also saw the, the steroid era. The steroid era was begotten because of natural hormones people were taking, whether it was Barry Bonds or uh, Roger Clemens, etc., that work to promote a healthier state, and 
often, but in those cases, they took super physiological amounts. So I talk, uh, when I talk to people, I say, wouldn't it be great if we had a magic or organ of our own human cells that were modified to secrete all the growth factors at their normal levels that they were at in our 20s when we reach our 60s. We've all heard now about low T, low testosterone is apparently a disease, but we know humanity is willing to take testosterone to restore to normal levels. And, uh, you know, given the safety and the, and the cost, people are going to do that. And we're going to, so as a result, we're going to see both performance and beauty and aging come under sway, but then it moves into animals, crops, and everything else. So it's a little scary, but uh, that's where we're headed. Well, very good. Steve, where, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work and your insights? Um, read the book, or is there a website they can go to? What's your I'll read the book first, Evolving Ourselves on Amazon, hard hardcover, paperback, Kindle, or, uh, audio. It's, uh, it's great. Uh, you can listen to some TED Talks by Juan Enriquez, my co-author. I have a few, but I like his better. And uh, beyond that, uh, just read the papers and begin to ask yourself the simple questions. What's this mean to me? What's this mean to my family? And uh, begin to be optimistic in my view. Just look at how the COVID vaccine was came about and just say, what else can we do? There will be anomalous things like, uh, you know, miniature elephants as a pet. That, that would be possible, but should we do it? So there's just lots of interesting observations out there and you can always find me on the internet it's i seem to be ubiquitous and people call or email me all the time excellent well steve thank you again for coming back on the podcast i really appreciate it your insight thank you richard it's a joy enjoy it thank you do you struggle with concentration have you ever thought of your brain health long term bomar nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent pending bright daily capsules powered by neurobloom if you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.